He said, they, they've come into the cabinet meeting and they have taken us hostage. I said, who? He says, definitely myself and the prime minister. They've taken us somewhere, but they also arrested the entire cabinet. I said, oh, Mr. President, in that case, I actually cannot leave. We'll try to see what we can do. From the Oslo Forum, welcome to the Mediator's Studio, a podcast about peacemakers, bringing you stories from behind the scenes. I'm your host, Adam Cooper. My guest today is a Ghanaian politician turned diplomat and mediator, Muhammad Ibn Champas. From 2014 until 2021, he served as the UN Special Representative for West Africa and the Sahel, where he contributed to peacemaking efforts in Burkina Faso, Mali, Niger, and beyond. Prior to that, he was the lead mediator for the joint United Nations and African Union mission in Darfur. Dr. Chambas was also head of the Economic Community of West African States, ECOWAS, where he helped negotiate an end to Liberia's civil war. Mohamed Ibn Chambas, welcome to the Mediator's Studio. Thank you very much, Adam. My pleasure. And thank you for having me. I'd like to take you back to your childhood in Ghana. Ghana was the first country in sub-Saharan Africa to become independent from colonial rule. The British leave in 1957, and in 1964, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah declares himself president for life. But eventually, he's overthrown in a military coup in 1966 and flees into exile. You, I think, were 15 years old when the coup happened. Do you remember where you were when you heard that news? And do you think the events of those times shaped your perspective as a mediator later on in life? Well, yeah, I certainly do remember my own uh, father at that time was a member of the Convention People's Party, which was Nkrumah's party, and in fact was a, a district commissioner under the Nkrumah government. And I was very far away from home. I was in Cape Coast in the south, where I was in the boarding school. And uh, he was, of course, in the north of Ghana. And when the overthrow of Kruma happened, there was a mass arrest of all functionaries and affiliates of his party, including my own father. So news uh, very quickly arrived that he, along with other members of the political party, had been arrested as part of the overthrow of Nkrumah. So uh, it touched me personally in that regard. And what did you think when politically you could see power just be seized in that way? Do you think it then sowed the seeds of, of your kind of political awakening or generated some passion in you to work on these sorts of issues in the future? I think so. I think um, that was certainly the period when my, what I would call my Pan-African perspective was developed, or at least the seeds of it uh, sown, because many of us young people at that time belonged to what was called the Young Pioneers. And uh, one of the creeds of Young Pioneers was to understand that you were going to grow up and commit yourself to selflessly to work for Ghana and Africa and that the destiny of Ghana was inextricably linked with the rest of the continent of Africa, and that we would all endeavor to project the African personality. I mean, these were things that were taught us in school. I'd like to take you to 1989. 
when you became involved in mediation efforts in Liberia. The National Patriotic Front of Liberia, an insurgent group led by Charles Taylor, launched a rebellion against Samuel Doe, who'd been in power for nearly a decade, with the backing of Burkina Faso, Ivory Coast, and Libya. And this effectively triggered the first Liberian civil war. You were the Deputy Foreign Minister of Ghana at the time. What did you do? I, from very early on, was the point person uh, who was dispatched to attend many of the meetings in the search for, for peace in Liberia. But I also had some relationships with uh, many Liberian politicians, uh, some of whom uh, I had known even back in the U.S. during my stay in the U.S. So this familiarity with many of the personalities and through my association with the Liberian Movement for Justice in Africa, I, I think was identified as somebody who could uh, relate quite well with the different Liberian uh, players, political, even the faction movements, etc. Take us into some of those meetings where you're speaking with Charles Taylor, Liberian government representatives, what did you tell Charles Taylor when you first met him? Well, um, it was not easy uh, getting to meet Charles Taylor. So it took several years before Charles Taylor himself would appear in any of these meetings. Uh, he would send other envoys. In those days, Mr. Tomuyu, who used to be the Minister of Defense of uh, MPFL, um, and then he would come and basically we could see that you just play delay tactics and draw out the whole process because they were very convinced that they were going to win militarily. And so they were not uh, very keen on negotiating. It, it sounds very much like they were trying to avoid any kind of mediated solution. So what did you do to try to shift that? Uh, an interposition force was deployed uh, initially in Monrovia, the capital, which then also started to make it quite plain that Mr. Taylor would not be allowed to gain military victory and that he would not be allowed militarily to impose himself as head of state of uh, Liberia. And this uh, created a stalemate because on the one hand, you still had Doe, who was uh, there as the elected president, but who increasingly controlled less and less of the territory. And Taylor and his movement over a period was controlling most of the chunk of Liberian territory. And uh, the need was there to facilitate dialogue and mediation talks to bring an end because uh, obviously uh, none of the, the factions were in a position to impose itself on the country. In 1990, Samuel Doe is executed and those rebel forces splinter, the war continues. And over the next five years, there's multiple attempts to negotiate peace, but without success. How do you deal with those failed agreements? You know, what kept you going during that time? Well, we realized that a solution, a political a mediated solution had to be found uh, if we were to avoid the kind of problems that uh, had brought about the conflict in the first place. A strongman mentality of uh, taking power by force of arms, that was 
already beginning to be repudiated as a means of accession to, to office. And uh, military government was beginning slowly to realize that we had to move towards a system where power would come from the people through democratic means, elections, and not by force of arms. And so once the, the region woke up to this uh, realization, I think it, it remained determined to find a negotiated settlement. And your role, Dr. Chambas, in the mediation efforts meant you were traveling in and out of Liberia during a period of quite intense violence. Talk us through some of those journeys. What, what were they like? Well, I actually was on a, on a mission on uh, 9th September. President Doe had been captured from the ECOWAS, uh, ECOMOG headquarters. And so because the force commander was Ghanaian and our forces had been in charge at the headquarters, the president of Ghana asked that I lead a Ghanaian delegation to go and really find out what the situation was and to boost the morale of the, of the troops, which I did uh, getting there on uh, September 14. And um, on our way out uh, that day, we, we had gone there with a Ghanaian naval ve- vessel. Just as uh, we got on board around 5 p.m., we were attacked. There were actually mortar fire which landed on the vessel. And um, we unfortunately lost a number of personnel and several scores of people who were on the quay because some mortars landed and who were unprotected were, were also killed and several injured. So it was a harrowing experience. And um, this brought home to me the, the, the war. And well, I had been hearing about it in our meetings and maybe reading about it, but here was I also experiencing a direct attack, a military attack on a vessel in which we had come to seek for peace uh, in Liberia. So we went through some of that uh, as mediators, but uh, we were not spared. It was, it was a horrible war in Liberia. Eventually, in 1996, the parties reach a peace deal and Charles Taylor is elected president later. But by the late 1990s, rebels in the northwest of the country launch an insurrection against Charles Taylor and the second Liberian civil war breaks out. And at that time, you're head of ECOWAS in 2003, when peace talks begin in Accra, the capital of Ghana. As a mediator, what were you trying to achieve then? At that point, um, it was becoming very clear that uh, Mr. Taylor's grip on the country had considerably weakened. And he was now pulled up in Morovia. And there were constant shelling on Morovia, leading to loss of life, a lot of desperation for the population. So it was at that point that the ECOWAS leadership determined that we... Uh, needed to make one concerted effort again to get a comprehensive agreement uh, which would end the second uh, civil war. Uh, we went to, to see him a few times, trying to see if we could not persuade Mr. Taylor for us to put in place transitional government and to find an honorable way for him to step down. Uh, he believed even to the last moment that 
it could still reverse militarily uh, the situation. I mean, something that uh, we knew was uh, way beyond his capabilities. I mean, what do you say to a man in that situation, Dr. Chambas, where the situation is he's there in the capital, Monrovia, it's besieged, you know, you have rebels at the doorstep of the capital city, and he's reluctant to step down, to go down from power. I mean, what do you say to someone to persuade them to do so? We made it plain that he could not win, and the worst case scenario would be that if the intervening forces were to let in the rebels, they would overrun the place and obviously he would get killed. However, there were other scenarios where the AU were willing to give him an exit strategy, which uh, was what was presented to him ultimately to come to Nigeria and to stay there uh, in asylum and to allow for a negotiated process. So you have this pressure that's coming from you, other members of the international community, also pressure from the peace movement inside Liberia, uh, led in large part by women. And Charles Taylor does eventually resign and, and goes into exile. What went through your mind when you heard he had gone? He insisted finally that uh, he would only leave if ECOWAS would bring in forces to protect the citizens of Monrovia. So I recall that President Obasanjo offered to send in an interposition force to protect the civilian population. And I think uh, this was one of the things to convince Taylor to finally leave, in addition, of course, to Nigerian offering to provide asylum. And uh, so finally, a delegation was dispatched to Monrovia to get him and his family and some of his entourage to fly back to Nigeria. And so we, we went to his, uh, to his residence and we, we, we told him that, okay, the deal was done and it was time for him to go. Uh, he played it big till the last moment, making a very grand statement as if to try and exit on a grand stage. But actually at that point, it was a very narrow hole that he was going out uh, through. Women were very important contributors to peace efforts in Liberia, especially with notable figures like Ellen Johnson Sirleaf and Leymar Gbowi taking leading roles. What did you learn from them? Uh, the, the determinant factor to re-engage on the part of ECOWAS was pushed by the women of Liberia. But the women were very determined, women such as Theresa Lee, Sherman, Mary Brownell, as you mentioned, Ellen Johnson, some very strong Liberian women. And they had formed the Manu River Union Women's Peace Network, uh, which from the very beginning, through every peace talks, would make sure that they were there to let their voice be heard, and uh, very strong working for peace and an end to civil war. And they had come to Abuja to, to lobby both the ECOWAS Commission, but the Nigerian authorities to say, look, the situation is desperate in, in Monrovia. ECOWAS needs to step in once again. That was when I was then directed to put in place a mediation effort to go to Accra, first and foremost, to negotiate for a ceasefire. And we achieved that on the 17th of, of June. And that gave us hope that perhaps 
there was light at the end of the tunnel. And it was a very broad spectrum of Liberian actors. And um, finally, on the 18th of August, 2003, we were able to get all the signatories to append their Accra Comprehensive Peace Agreement. Soon after that peace agreement is reached, the UN mission in Liberia arrives to monitor the agreement. An interim government is put in place and there are elections in 2005, which see Ellen Johnson Sirleaf come to power as the first female president in Africa. How significant was that? It was very significant. In the corridors of, of, of power within the African Union, she used to be the lone one. But of course, she's a strong lady and she was able to stand herself in good stead. And I think uh, was without doubt a strong model for many young African women and just showed what the African women could do if they were given the opportunity. So for me personally, and I had known her, I had good personal relations. She was my big sister and I always remained so. So I, I had a, a lot of pride also in seeing that all this uh, work that uh, we had all done together was not in vain. And that a good example was coming out of Liberia with the election of a female head of state. Let's move to another episode for you as a mediator, Darfur in 2012, when you are the African Union-United Nations Joint Special Representative for Darfur, in charge of the peace negotiations. Help set the scene for our listeners. You know, what's going on politically and in terms of security? What were you trying to achieve as a mediator? Yes, I arrived in, in Darfur in a context where the major factions which were fighting the central government of uh, Omar al-Bashir, were pretty much still intact. Uh, There had been an effort to get them to sign an agreement, but those discussions did not arrive in bringing on board these major leaders from Darfur. So on the ground in Darfur, there was a lot of skepticism for what had been signed and which was the DDPD, the Doha Peace Agreement for Darfur. And in structure, it it tried to address many issues, the root causes, the ethnic problems, the land issues, uh, development questions, protection of civilians. So as a document, uh, one really could not fault it. Uh, And I think which was a major shortcoming was that the principal movements were not signatories to it. Security-wise, the population was trapped in fighting between the Sudanese uh, armed forces and uh, these movements. And then the displaced Liberian population, mostly the indigenous Black Darfurian population, were in these huge uh, IDP camps for which our mission had the responsibility to protect. So my two roles were one, to ensure that our deployment there in Darfur protected the IDPs and in a way uh, avoided the attacks on them and on the other hand to deepen 
the political agreement to see how the DDPD could be sold to the main movements in, in Darfur. You paint a picture of a complex conflict landscape where you have the Sudanese government attacking a number of civilians and rebel forces in the area. You know, in a splinter group, the Justice and Equality Movement Sudan, led by Mohammed Bashar, they do sign this deal, this Doha document for peace in Darfur. But after they do, uh, a month afterwards, their convoy is attacked in Chad, just five miles from the border with Darfur, and they're killed. Where were you when you heard that news, and, and what did you do? That whole incident was, in a way, my baptism of fire. Because I arrived in Darfur in the first week of April, and I literally just put my bags down, and I was told there was negotiation which was going on in Doha and was about to conclude with a faction of GEM movement. So I was needed in Doha. And on arrival, uh, in fact, the negotiations had been completed, and Mohammed Bashar and his faction had agreed to sign on to come onto the DDPD. And uh, so I was there and I actually witnessed the document on behalf of the UN. The agreement was signed on 6th of April. And then after the signature, this particular leader and his entourage decided to return to Sudan. But they chose to go first to N'Djamena, Chad, and to drive from N'Djamena into Darfur to demonstrate that they had territory to be controlled in Darfur before the triumphal, uh, I guess, entry into Khartoum. They arrived in N'Djamena and then they set off in their convoy. And on the 13th of May, they were ambushed and uh, they were eliminated. The leader, his deputy, and at least uh, 10, 12 of the senior hierarchy of the movement, and at least another 20 senior leaders were captured by the Jibril uh, Ibrahim faction of JAM and then taken into Darfur. So that was quite uh, a gory incident, but it also drew attention to the fact that perhaps we needed to work even harder to get the major leaders of these uh, movements on board the peace agreement if it was going to stand the test of time. Let's move on and talk about Burkina Faso. In 2014, you take up the post of Special Representative of the UN Secretary General for West Africa and the Sahel. And almost as you were starting your new job on 30th of October 2014, news comes through that the parliament building in Ouagadougou, the capital of Burkina Faso, has been set ablaze by protesters. Where were you and what did you do? I had actually left Darfur and I was due to assume office in the UN office for West Africa. But there was a U, an African Union uh, retreat. And so I left Darfur a bit early to participate in this. And then 
While I was delivering my remarks during this opening ceremony, a piece of paper was slipped to me, uh, which said the parliament building in Ouagadougou has been set on fire. So during the break, I approached the AU commissioner for political affairs and President Obasanjo was there too. And I suggest to, to, to them that the way the situation was evolving was necessary that we went to Burkina to find a way to contain the anger and the outbursts of frustration that the youth and the civil society were expressing so that at least the situation did not get out of control. And so we made a call to Madame Zuma, who was then the president of the AU Commission, who, who gave her blessings. She said, okay, uh, Chambers, if you think this is what we should do, go ahead. And of course, I then sought uh, clearance from New York. And then at that point, I turned to the ECOWAS side. And I remember that the President Mahama of Ghana was the chair, and he was on a state visit in Norway. But I called him and briefed him on what was going on and told him that I thought that early action was called for and that ECOWAS, AU, and UN should get on the ground and try to find out who the principal actors were and to find a way to contain what was happening. So that's how the next day we landed in uh, Burkina Faso. It's interesting because your instinct when you heard there was a fire was to run towards it as quickly as possible, it sounds like. And to put out that fire. But it is interesting because as we were landing, the president was leaving the country. Kampari left without even we seeing him. So we're on the ground and we had to deal with Lieutenant Colonel Zida, who had been given a note to come and read to the insurrection to tell them that the president had resigned and was no longer president of the country. And of course, who then tried to take advantage of that to install himself as president. But we had to convince him that it would not be in the best interest of a transition uh, for him to assume power because it would violate some of the important protocols of the two organizations. So you have the situation where the president's left the country, there's competing claims on power. You know, what did you do to help create an administration to fill that power vacuum and stabilize the country? Now, we maintained very close contact with the coalition of political parties, the opposition parties, which had come together to support the insurrection. And then we also met civil society organizations to encourage them very quickly as the force vive of the country to themselves come out with their vision of how the transition would look like. And we also encourage them to try and ensure there wasn't a long drawn out transition. And then of course, facilitated dialogue between them and the military to ensure security. And then of course, a National Transitional Council, a CNT was put in place. We also had set up an international contact group to broaden international support for the transition. And I had scheduled to leave on the 16th. And just as I was about to leave my hotel room, I get a phone call. And uh, when I pick the phone up, it is a 
President Kafandu. And he says, ah, is this Jambas? And I said, yes. And he says, well, I'm told that you are leaving today. And I said, Mr. President, I'm actually just leaving my hotel room, going to the airport to leave. We had a very good meeting. And uh, I think things are on course. We're looking forward to good elections at the end of the transition. And then he cut in and says, ah, but Chambers, you can't leave. You can't leave. And I said, why, Mr. President, you want to see me? He said, yes, because we are being held hostage here. I was like, what? You held hostage and where? He said, we were in a cabinet meeting and the, the RSP, RSP was a special presidential security force and the President Kampara, very loyal to him and which had a reputation of being a very strong force. He said, they, they've come into the cabinet meeting and they have taken us hostage. I said, who? He says, definitely myself and the prime minister. They've taken us somewhere, but they also arrested the entire cabinet. So I said, oh, Mr. President, in that case, I actually cannot leave. We'll try to see what we can do. You know, so I stay behind. And my instinct was to call the head of the RS, uh, RSP, which was General Gingeri who I knew, I'd known him over a long time. Initially, he was not very forthcoming and seemed you know, to be puzzled. He didn't know what was going to happen, what was going on. He would try to find out and get back to me. And then as it turned out, by the evening, the non-commissioned officers uh, who were in the forefront of this and some junior officers named him as the leader of the AKU. So we had a new situation to deal with, and uh, that provoked a lot of negotiations uh, with the RSP, with the leadership, and we encouraged also the eminent persons in Burkina Faso to play a role to diffuse this new situation because uh, clearly um, it was very tense, and this is ultimately uh, how it was resolved and um, the transition was back uh, on track. I'd like to ask you for some reflections on your long career. There have been five coups in Africa this year, twice in Mali, Chad, Sudan, and Guinea, where you've recently been appointed ECOWAS Special Envoy. What do you think mediators can do better to lay the groundwork for democratic institutions and long-term peace? You know, what lessons can we learn from those setbacks? I think one of the key lessons that we uh, should admit is that, yes, there have been some very good instruments, normative, legal frameworks, level of AU, and certainly at the level of ECOWAS. And these all have certain instruments, uh, tools there, uh, for early warning analysis, uh, setting up a council of the wise, monitoring elections to ensure that they are credible. But I think there has been weakness in implementation. Maybe the prevention side have not been triggered early enough. You are the consummate diplomat, calm, highly experienced, but what mediators are asked to do is often incredibly daunting. When was the last time you were nervous? 
I've gotten nervous a few times, of course, being on a vessel that gets bombed. I think uh, uh, no matter how diplomatically calm one has learned to be, can make one uh, quite nervous. So there have been moments like that. And when you look back on your career, Dr. Chambas, what do you think you've learned about mediation that you didn't know when you first started out in this field? Well, that's a tough one because uh, with mediation, I think um, one has to always be aware that it's not every effort that you embark on that will necessarily lead to a quick um, uh, solution. Yes, you go into it very optimistic and try to achieve results as as quickly as possible. But um, it doesn't always uh, work that way. And I think also some successes can be reversed so that you you get a good outcome, a successful outcome. But um, if one does not monitor and uh, keep an eye on a particular conflict, we have seen often that they can be reversals to the process. And that is something that we must always keep in mind. When we were doing research, Dr. Chambas, and I was trying to learn about your background and career, I read a rather old BBC profile of you that says you love jazz and the high life. What did they mean by that? Well, you know, that was uh, by a mischievous, very good friend of mine, a very respected Ghanaian journalist called Kwekuse Chado. Well, high life he was referring to there was the, is a Ghanaian dance music. He, he knew that even in our revolutionary days, we always tried to make time to relax and not to get all, you know, <laughs> wired up because I think it's sane for the mind if one can also take time away from all this to, 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 to just, uh, my daughter would say, chillax. Yeah, well, some, find some relaxation from the, the, the tense meeting rooms on the dance floor. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, there we must end this interview. Mohammed Ibn Chambas, thank you so much for being my guest in the Mediator Studio. Very kind of you. Very kind of you, Adam. Thank you. And there we must end this edition of the Mediator Studio. To get new episodes as soon as they're released, make sure you subscribe. The Mediator Studio team loves hearing your feedback and suggestions. If you have a moment, please fill out our very short listener survey on our website. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter at Adam Talks Peace. The Mediator Studio is an Oslo Forum podcast brought to you by the Centre for Humanitarian Dialogue and the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Our managing editor is Christina Buchold, and the show is produced by Christopher Gunnis. Research for this episode was done by Evie Krasner and Jason Nemirovsky. Neither peacemaking nor podcasts happen without lots of work behind the scenes. My thanks go to our whole production team in Geneva and in Oslo. I hope you'll be with me for the next edition. Until then, this is Adam Cooper saying goodbye and thank you for listening.